If you have a uh, Bible or a smartphone, could you please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. So, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 10, which was the gospel going to the Gentiles. And if that word sounds unfamiliar to you, a Gentile is simply anyone that was not a Jew. If you're not a Jew, you would have been considered a Gentile from the nations. And the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And this is an enormous milestone in Acts chapter 6. At Pentecost in Acts 2, the church was comprised simply and only of Jewish people in Jerusalem. About three years later, in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans, who were half Jews, half Gentiles, are brought in. And then about six years after Acts chapter 2, I know it's hard to kind of tell exactly when everything's happening, about six years after Pentecost is Acts chapter 10. The Apostle Peter is in a place called Joppa, and he has a vision in a dream about all animals now being clean for food. Shortly after, he's taken up the coast to Caesarea, and he meets there an Italian man, a Gentile, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius believes the good news of Jesus Christ. He is baptized, him and his household, and he receives the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Peter is present, and he affirms that the Gentiles have now participated in the same Pentecost event as the Jews did in Acts chapter 2, and the Samaritans did in Acts chapter 8, and are therefore equal members of the church along with the Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. This is a big, big moment, and it takes years and years to work out. And some would say, arguably it's still being worked out, uh, in some some denominations and sections of the church as to what this means and what this looks like and what laws must be followed and which Old Testament laws are abrogated and, and ended. But this is a big, big, momentous event. And Acts chapter 11 is really just a retelling of Acts chapter 10 to the church in Jerusalem. What I would think would be helpful after looking at this big massive text of Acts chapter 10 two weeks ago, we simply focus on the Old Covenant food laws or the dietary laws which are done away with. And they tell us something about the changing nature of the kingdom of God. So that's it. That's what I'm promising. A sermon on the food laws. Why do the Jews not eat pork? Why did the Jews not eat shellfish? What was the point of all of this? Maybe you've thought about this. Maybe you have an opinion on it. Maybe you've never thought about it at all. We'll get to the bottom of it this Sunday morning. So we're going to read the first 18 verses of Acts chapter 11. You follow along with me, please. This is the word of the Lord. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, 
you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa, and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that they could stand that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is God's word. And the word of the Gentiles coming into the church quickly spreads. This is huge, huge news, and it goes down to Jerusalem. Peter visits Jerusalem and is criticized by the circumcision party. Now, there's no reason for us to think that the circumcision party is anything other than Jewish Christians. And I want us to notice their chief concern. Their chief concern is not that Gentiles have received the gospel. Their chief concern is not that Peter preached to them. Their chief concern is that not that Peter talked with them. The chief concern of the church of Jerusalem is that you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. The thing that you've done wrong, Peter, is that you've eaten with Gentiles. This is something that's hard for us to wrap our heads around, but it's understandable. This food would not have been prepared in a kosher way. They would have been possibly served food that was unclean for Jewish people. And we know today that Jewish, Jewish people still do not eat things like pork. Certain uh Sects within uh, Christianity or on the fringe of Christianity, such as the Seventh-day Adventists, will not eat pork. They just don't. They don't eat pork, they don't eat shellfish. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, where did this all come from? 
Why? And the answer is, in the Old Covenant Law of Moses, specifically in two chapters, Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. They're basically the same, uh, same text. After coming out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus, Israel were poised to enter the promised land of Canaan. And God, through Moses, gave this nation a series of laws, moral, civil, ceremonial. And the dietary laws are what we would call part of the ceremonial law. They had to do with worship, and they had to do with eating and doing things that made you clean or unclean. Now, we're not going to read all of Leviticus 11 for the sake of time. You can read it yourself. This is that part of the... uh, the Bible in a year that you skip, right? You get to Leviticus, it gets hard. Well, here's why it's there. Leviticus 11 is summarized into four main sections relating to which types of animals the Jewish people could and could not eat. Is it clean and good for food, or is it unclean and you can't have it? first section is land animals, then it's water animals, then it's flying animals, and then there's a series of clean and unclean laws such as not being allowed to eat animals that have died of natural death, and also not allowed to eat uh, using bowls that have been touched by unclean things. So you can imagine if you're a, uh, a wife in, uh, in Israel, and you have this wonderful, big, ornate wooden bowl that you're very proud of, and it's used front and center, and along comes um, a pig, It comes along and touches your ball. It's gone. There's no way of cleaning it. You must burn it. You must throw it away now. If something that your cat dies in your house, on your in in your kitchen, you got to burn your kitchen. Basically, that's the that's the rule. And so the question is now: Why do these laws exist? If I ask you, and it's very common, and I believe this myself, so don't feel bad. If I ask you, why do these laws exist? Most people will say something related to hygiene, right? Why did God give Israel these laws? Well, to keep them clean, and people will say things like, pigs are dirty. You heard that? Pigs are dirty, therefore the Jews were not allowed to eat pork. People will say something like, There was no refrigeration in the land of Canaan, and as a result, God didn't want his people to get Canaanite salmonella, so don't eat pork. And it sounds reasonable. Let me say this. There's no biblical evidence for that view. There's nothing in there, nothing in the text that gives us warrant for that view. And furthermore, In A.D. 36, in Acts chapter 10, when God declares all foods clean to Peter, those same hygiene reasons still exist. Pigs still are not the most hygienic animals, and Fisher and Pico do not have a store in Caesarea. They just don't. The reason is given right at the end of... Leviticus chapter 11. When in doubt, just read the Bible, and it will tell you. Leviticus 11, 45, it says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. Be holy, for I am holy. 
You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. If you know your Bible well, you know your New Testament, you will know that that command, be holy, for I am holy, is found also in the New Testament. God commands the Israelites to be a holy people. A separate and distinct people. That's the meaning of the word. A separate and distinct people from everyone else in the land of Canaan. And the reason for this is because he himself is a holy God. He is a holy God unlike anyone else. Therefore, he wants his people to be holy and unlike the rest of the world. And so the key purpose of these food laws was to separate the Israelites from their neighbors. To separate them from those around them. If you think about this for a moment, food has a unique ability to separate people and also to unite people. We see this in all kinds of diets, paleo diets, keto diets, Atkins, primal, gluten-free, low-carb, vegetarian, whatever your diet is, it has a unique ability to unite or separate people. We see this in the kinds of restaurants that we have in our city. Mexican, Indian, Vietnamese, Chinese, Malaysian, Japanese, food is connected to culture. And sharing a meal, and you tend to eat the same kind of food as the people that you're sharing the meal with. It has an immense ability to foster relationship. I know people, and I certainly feel that way, you don't feel close to someone until you've had a meal with them. Food and diet have a wonderful ability to both unite and, sadly, to separate. And separation is what God is after in Leviticus 11. He's sending his people into the promised land. And God used these laws not for hygiene reasons, but for moral and spiritual reasons, to separate his people from the pagan gods of their neighbors. One such way we we could uh, understand this is that in Egyptian culture, cows were almost venerated, much like modern-day Hindus. And so Israel just come out of Egypt. In Leviticus 11, it says, you're good to eat cows. It's fine to eat cows. This was a barrier with the people that they just left. The Egyptians won't eat cows, and you will eat cows. And by all reports, and multiple commentaries have said this, and it's, it's, it's very easily uh, verified, if you went into Canaanite culture, everyone was eating pork. They highly respected pigs, they worshipped pigs, and they ate pigs. You go to dinner with a Canaanite, you're going to be eating shoulder roast, bacon, something like that. And so these laws managed to separate the Jewish people from Egyptians, Canaanite tribes, Babylonians, Arabs, all the Gentile nations. Nowhere is this more clear, this reasoning, than in Deuteronomy 20, uh, chapter 12, verse 29 to 32. 
And he, God says to them, take care that you do not be ensnared to follow other gods. After you've destroyed the nations before you, that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their God, that I may also do the same. So the question, the basic command is, therefore, I want you to be a holy people. I want you to worship me alone. I want you to go into the land, but I don't want you to eat meals with those pagan Gentiles in the land. Don't eat their foods. Don't partake of their culture. Don't sit in their lounges. Don't worship their God. Don't marry their woman. Be holy as I am holy. So that's our background to the food laws. We'll learn something there. The question is, therefore, now, so what? So what? Well, here in Acts chapter 11, Peter recounts his vision. He says he saw a vision like a great sheet descending, something like a sail. Sail on America's cup boats, just coming down. And it's being let down from heaven by its four corners, came down to me. And he observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds and all these animals. And he heard the words, rise, Peter, kill and eat. The sheet is the kingdom of God, expanding to the ends of the earth, as the kingdom should do, as Acts 1.8 says. sees all these animals, and they match up with the categories found in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. This voice saying, kill and eat, and Peter responds by saying, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is unclean. Peter's protest echoes, Ezekiel's protest in Ezekiel 4.14, where God commands Ezekiel to eat food cooked with dung. Peter sounds exactly like Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 4, go read it after lunch. Um, And from there, the story goes on about how the Gentiles heard the gospel. So very obviously, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, there's a connection between all foods being clean and the gospel going to the Gentiles. I want to make a very, very quick point, and it's got something to do with the dominion of humanity, which is kind of being undermined in this day and age. This text tells us that killing animals to eat is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Russell's shaking his head, I mean, nodding his head. Yes, it is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. There is a separation between men and women and the rest of the animal kingdom. God created men and women in his image separate from the rest of the creation. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So that means we are qualitatively different from even the highest of the animal kingdom. Whales, orangutans, gorillas, dolphins even. They are not like us. So I want to say to you, it is perfectly acceptable. Hear me. It is perfectly acceptable to be a vegetarian. It is perfectly acceptable to be a uh, a vegan for health reasons issues of your conscience, if you want to do it as a result of stewardship because you don't like farming techniques, you don't like battery chickens, fine, all good to do that. 
But there is no moral superiority in not eating meat. Jesus ate the Passover meal, which would have included lamb. Jesus ate fish, even though I believe fish is basically a vegetable. Jesus ate fish with his disciples. So what do we make of these changes to the dietary laws? I'd like to suggest briefly that they tell us something about the nature of the kingdom of God, and they tell us something about biblical covenants. So these, this change tells us something about the kingdom and something about biblical covenants. Firstly, the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament kingdom of Israel, the food laws kept the Jews and the Gentiles apart. They existed to make sure that the Jews did not worship false gods. And so Peter's vision is directly tied to the expansion of the kingdom to include the Gentiles within it. Peter begins to realize this as he heads up the road to Caesarea. And the big deal is, is that the Gentiles don't follow Leviticus 11. They don't follow the ceremonial laws. This is the problem. This is the problem. The question becomes, do we force the Gentiles to adopt our dietary habits as Jews? But God does something different. Instead of changing what the Gentiles eat, Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit and the Gospel to change the gods the Gentiles worship. Instead of changing food, he changes the god they worship. That was the point. And so the kingdom of God is the reign of Jesus Christ in the world. In the Old Testament kingdom, there was a separation between Jew and Gentile. But in the New Testament, in the kingdom of God, the kingdom unites Jew and it unites Gentiles, but it brings separation between believers in Jesus Christ and those who don't believe in him. This change in dietary laws is necessary to expand the people of God and the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans fourteen seventeen, he says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There has been a qualitative change. This gets very, very messy. We'll get to that in Acts chapter 15. But it gets resolved. So these dietary laws tell us something about the nature of the kingdom of God. Secondly, they tell us something about covenants and the gospel. The kingdom of God is constructed through a series of covenantal agreements that God makes with his people. Covenants govern and construct this kingdom. And so the kingdom of Israel was constructed through the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants. And the dietary laws came in through Moses. And one of the key purposes in the Mosaic covenant was to govern the people of Israel's time in this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey that we all heard about in Sunday school growing up. This land was to be a place of work and worship under the rule of God. But the question was always, will you listen to me, your God, or will you not? If you are obedient, you will live long in the land. 
If you are disobedient, you will lose this wonderful land and you will be exiled. God puts his people on probation. Listen to me, you stay, disobey me, you leave. But this should remind us, this land of Canaan should remind us of an earlier land of work and worship. The Garden of Eden. Adam was told to work and to keep this garden, to keep it free from evil, to work and worship with his wife and his family in the Garden of Eden. And he was given a dietary law too. He was given a dietary law too. Don't eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God used food laws in both of these kingdoms, which were governed by covenants. Listening to Satan and breaking God's laws got Adam and Eve exiled from the garden and the tree of life which was in the garden, and so they died. Disobeying God's law gets you exiled. It's simple. Disobeying God's law and breaking his dietary laws got the Israelites into idolatry in the land of Canaan and wound up getting them exiled into Babylon. So the food laws are bigger than simply not eating. They're about the question of, will you listen to God? You're on probation. There's a temptation here for you. Will you listen to God and show yourself faithful, or will you disobey and face the consequences? Our great need is not food laws. Our great need is a problem with what is within us, our sin. Jesus Christ himself said in Mark 7:19, he says, "Do you not see that whatever goes do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled?" Thus he declared all foods clean. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. And he goes on to say, disobedience, covetousness, anger. It is what is in our hearts, what comes out of us that ultimately defiles us, not what we put in us. It's not about bacon or shellfish or cows or anything of that nature. It's about what's here. But a biblical theology, Jesus Christ then, the greater Adam, the greater Moses, the true Israel, the Son of God, entered into human history born under the law as a Jew, and he kept God's law perfectly on our behalf, including Leviticus 11. Jesus did not have anything to do with bacon, and he still lived a fulfilling life. That's a lesson for us guys. Furthermore, not only did Jesus keep this old Testament law. He too faced a probationary assignment, temptation. He went into the wilderness for 40 days and he fasted of food. Luke chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted by the devil who commanded him to turn stones into bread to eat. And to wor- and then he commanded him to worship him and he will give him all the kingdoms of this world. Do we see that connection in Luke 4 and the temptation in the wilderness? Eat the food that I tell you to eat, Satan says, and then 
worship me. Same thing over and over and over. But Jesus said instead, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus' great desire was to be obedient and to worship his Father. Jesus Christ succeeded where Adam and Eve and Israel failed. So what? Well, as a result, through his death and resurrection, it doesn't just become about the failures of Eden. It doesn't just become about the failures of Canaan. He won the right to rule over a new creation with no fear of exile for all who trust in him. In Jesus' death and his resurrection, he inaugurated a new covenant in his blood in which he promises to write God's laws on our hearts, in which he promises that the true God of Scripture will be our God. And he promises also to forgive our sins. This is the new covenant of Hebrews 8. And the great wonderful news in this new covenant is that there is no threat of exile because of our failure to keep God's law. Because Jesus Christ has kept it on our behalf. You're sitting here this morning going, well that's dumb, I wouldn't have eaten bacon, I wouldn't have eaten that, I would have kept that. No, you wouldn't have. Because each one of us has failed to obey the big commands of God, which are to love Him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We receive these blessings, we receive these benefits by repenting of our sin and by faith, trusting that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. That's how we receive them. We don't earn them, He earns them on our behalf and we simply receive them. And we see this at the end of our section in Acts 11 and verse 18. It says, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Have you thought of that? Repentance that leads to life. Turning from sin, turning from disobedience to God, the true source of life. The new covenant is the life-giving covenant. It's a covenant that is pictured and renewed to us each time we take the Lord's Supper. And we feed and are nourished in faith as we participate in His body and blood. This is a hard word for us to comprehend and it's a word that still shocks me as I read it. Jesus says in John chapter 6, Truly, truly, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. How do we feed on Jesus Christ? This doesn't turn into His body. This doesn't turn into His blood. We're not Catholic. We feed by faith, spiritually by faith. He nourishes us by faith. We receive forgiveness by faith in Him. So let's sum up. The food laws were given to the Israelites that they may be holy and separated from those around them because God is holy. Our great need is also to be holy because our God is holy. So 
There is a holiness, the writer of Hebrews says, without which we will not see the Lord. But Jesus Christ is our holiness. Faith in Jesus Christ is the remedy for our lack of holiness. And he calls us to live a holy life under his lordship in his kingdom with no threat of exile when we sin. That's good news. When we sin, we simply repent and by faith receive his forgiveness once again. Paul says in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, he says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Even the food laws point us to Jesus. Let's pray.